Just wanted to do a quick warning that this episode has content that might be triggering to people, specifically a conversation around sexual abuse. If that might be triggering and too much for people, please know that in advance. Thank you. I did a lot of harmful things to myself and the people around me, drugs, alcohol, sex. And I realized at a certain moment in my 30s, these things aren't serving me. What I just recently started to recognize is those things I was doing, I was looking for these releases and I was looking for happiness. And maybe a drug would give me a short-term happiness, but I'm not dealing with the underlining reason why I'm unhappy. I'm not even aware of why I'm unhappy. And so it took me many years to say, well, if this isn't serving me, if I'm truly not happy, what's going to bring me happiness? Matthew Goldstein is founder and CEO of Columbus nonprofit, BESA. BESA was founded more than 10 years ago and has put more than 60,000 volunteers to work. They've helped more than 150 nonprofits and completed over 10,000 projects. I um, have known Matt and been involved with BESA from the very beginning. He's been an incredible partner, somebody we've loved collaborating with at Gravity and Kaufman Development for many, many years now. He's a friend, somebody I really respect and admire, and it was wonderful to sit down with him and hear his story and be able to share it with you. I hope you enjoy it. All right, we are back in the studio today with a really good dear friend, Matthew Goldstein. It's great to be with you. Boy, just as I sit here and look at you, you know, I go back and think about our first meeting and the now many years. I don't even know how many, but it's getting close to 10 maybe. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little over a decade. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. And just a perfect example of like synergistic experience that brought us together that turned into all kinds of wonderful things for, for both of us and hopefully for many, many others based on the work that you're doing. Yeah. It's fun. I think just to ramp for a second at the start, you know, for me, the thing that I really have gotten more and more over time is the thing that means the most to me when I look back in hindsight is the relationships, the friendships and the ones that you're able to continue to engage with over long periods of time. And in this case, I'm talking in particular about work and the journey of, of business for me, those relationships. And really those, you know, aren't work relationships, they're friendships, but you're doing work together and you do it over a long period of time. And that's the thing that means more to me than anything else. So you're, you're somebody I, I think of when I look back and, and think about those important relationships. I appreciate that. I think both of us are building something, right? You with Kaufman, me with Bessa, but then we're also building something together, which is mm-hmm. quite beautiful. Mm-hmm. We can't do it in a corner by ourselves. We've right. got to do it in collaboration. So who do you want around the table? Yeah. Who's drawn to that table? Yeah. Yeah. So you're right. And I want to, we'll go back and start on your life journey. I want to hear the whole journey towards you landing on BESA and, and also talk about BESA and what you're doing and where you're headed with it. Uh, yeah. Just to follow up on that last comment, I agree. You know, this is the thing that, you know, we say we're building the world's largest conscious community in order to do that you have to do it in collaboration with other people. And to build a conscious community, it's gotta extend outside of the walls of the buildings. It has to extend into the broader community. And when we say that we aspirationally aim to change the world, to make some sort of impact and change in the world, it's gonna have to be through partnership with people like you who are really out there finding ways to help people in a really broad, broad sense. I mean, just, we couldn't do it without you. I mean, ditto. It's how do you, how do you create a spark that ignites passion 
that ignites an opportunity for people to live to their fullest selves. And again, yeah, how do we do it in collaboration? I think all of us are just trying to figure out how to be, you know, what I think about is how can I be the most human person possible? And I think about sometimes I work so many hours, right? But that doesn't give me fulfillment. And so where do I find that fulfillment? Be it where I live, where I work, where I play, and how do I focus more on those components and do it with other people? To me, that makes me more human. That makes me more happy. That brings more joy to my life. Um, but sometimes you're, I put myself in a box and I have to work, I have to make money. I have to do all these things that society tells me I have to do, mm-hmm. but I really don't have to, mm-hmm. I can focus where I want to focus and, and try to live a fulfilling life that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I promise we're going to go back and start <laughs> with, um, your journey, but I, I just am curious mm-hmm. right away. I wonder in your case, doing the work that you do where it's so purpose driven, where you get to see the impact that you're making in people's lives and the fulfillment that comes with that, if that makes it harder to turn it off, Hmm. meaning, you know, when you think about family and, you know, the other things that matter in life, I wonder if it's even harder for you to find balance when the fulfillment of the impactful work that you're doing is there waiting for you. Yeah, for me, it's not about as much about finding balance. I will never find balance. It's just not the way I'm, I'm made. I don't think most people are made. And it's coming to terms and, and coming to peace with that. I think the more important question is, where do I want to focus and concentrate my time? So I love being out in the community. I love talking to volunteers. I, I love talking to potential funders, right? Bringing them to the table, giving them an opportunity to see what we're trying to build here asking them to be a part of it. But what I find is a lot of my time is consumed by administrative work, emailing and and all those tasks. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I'm emailing at night on the sofa when my husband Ian is bringing me food and I barely look up at him. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's not fulfillment. And I can turn off the email. I think it's important, but really it's keeping me from what is important. Mm -hmm. And so I don't necessarily want balance in my life. But what I do want is to be able to focus more time and energy on the things that give me fulfillment. Mm -hmm. So yes, spending time with my family, my husband, my dog, my daughter, um, and, and my extended family. Yes. Volunteering. Yes. Doing this work of BESA. And I'm okay working more than 40 hours. It's just how am I working those 40 plus hours versus Mm -hmm. how I sometimes currently get into the hamster wheel. Mm Mm-hmm. And sometimes don't even realize I'm on the hamster wheel until Ian says, Hey, I just made you dinner and you didn't even look up at me. Mm -hmm. And so like getting called out like that gives me that awareness that, wait a second, I'm getting into this negative space. That's not serving me, not serving the people around me and not serving my work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I got it. Yeah. I mean, that awareness is huge. Okay. Let's, let's back up. You know, you and I have had a chance to talk. You reminded me that we've been talking about doing this since Mm pre-pandemic. And I remember us getting together during the pandemic and having some really good conversations about life and trauma and just this journey that uh, we're all on. You know, I don't know how much of that you've shared, but I'd love for you to just start at the beginning and talk a little bit about your childhood, you know, just where you're from and your family dynamics and anything about you as a, as a child? Yeah. I would say, first of all, you know, yes, we've been talking about this opportunity to come together like this for a couple of years. I'm grateful that it's coming now and not previously because I've done a lot of work over these past couple of years that I think have helped me again, become a more in touch with myself, become more human in a way. And so I feel like I can be more honest, not just with you and, and your listeners, but also with myself. Mm. I'm from Philadelphia. I've been in Columbus for 23 years now. I came here for school and I never left. I just fell in love with the people. I fell in love with the city. It's interesting. I, I applied to seven colleges uh, when I was in high school. I visited six. The one I did not visit is the one I went to, Ohio hmm. State University. And I don't know why that is. Like I went all the way out to 
Waco, Texas with my mother <laughs> to visit a school and we were doing the college tour. And my mother said, how many uh, Jews are on campus? And the guy said "Two, you and your son. <laughs> and so I, I, I don't know, I, I just explored the country, but somehow landed on Columbus, Ohio and had no idea what to expect from Columbus, Ohio. Mm -hmm. I really, when I came here, I didn't know anybody. I think I was trying to escape from Philadelphia. And I didn't necessarily even know what that meant, but I knew that deep down I was unhappy mm. and I wanted to, in some ways, start over, start fresh, start somewhere where there weren't people that I went to school with and that turned out to be Ohio State. Mm -hmm. And I had a, an incredible experience there. Tell, well, tell, yeah. me, tell me a little more about, um, you know, what was it that in childhood had you unhappy yeah. and what was it that you wanted to get away from? Tell me more about, you know, who you were as a, as a kid. Yeah. I find it to be important. It, it seems to really be a big part of this, this yeah. journey, you know, that early part. Yeah. So I grew up two parent household, four siblings, a full brother and a half sister and a half brother, but we could just consider them full, right? Like I didn't see them as half, if you will. And I think on the outside, things seemed like a normal, happy, healthy family. And the way I look at it is there were also a lot of smoke and mirrors. And my family and I went through a lot of trauma that I think, you know, the way that my therapist describes it is that I'm lucky to be alive right now, that every statistic says that I probably should have there were a lot of opportunities for me to take my own life. And in fact, something that I've been writing about and thinking a lot about is that when I was, I have a, an 18 month old daughter now named Evie, who I, I love. But when I was in elementary school, I think I was in third or fourth grade, I told one of my friends that I'm going to go home and kill myself. And I remember the next day him coming to me and saying, I wasn't sure if I would see you today. Mm. And you know, I think about that because what does it take for, I don't know how old I was, right? Like seven, eight, nine years old, but what's going on in that environment that a seven, eight or nine year old is thinking about things like that, mm -hmm. about, about ending his life. Mm. And I, I bring up Evie because, you know, I would never want my daughter to feel that way. And if she did to hopefully be aware of it and providing support, et cetera, to support her through that. And so there was a lot going on in the household and from there was molestation, there was physical abuse, there was verbal abuse. My father was going through a terrible, his business was, was uh, crumbling and uh, there were lawsuits. And I remember when I was probably like five or six, I was in the back of the car. My brother, Michael was driving and we were in a parking spot at a mall, King of Prussia Mall outside of Philadelphia. And he turned around and he said, from this day forward, nothing's going to be the same. And I'm five or six. I don't know what that means. Mm -hmm. But what that meant was our family was affluent. We traveled. Um, we lived a good life, whatever that means, a good life. But they had money and they were, we were able to do a lot of things with that money. And from this day forward, what my brother was saying is that's all changing. Mm. And... I think my older siblings got a better taste of what that life was prior. Mm -hmm. My taste was really what came after, which was my father working at a 7-Eleven graveyard shift 45 minutes away from where we lived so that people wouldn't know that's what he was doing. Mm -hmm. And us living in a big house that we couldn't necessarily afford, but trying to keep up the illusion that we could afford it. Mm -hmm. That was my parents, you know, trying to manage all of this and in some ways shield me from it. And so it's going on, but they're not talking to me about it. But you have kids, kids see everything. Mm -hmm. And if you're not explaining it to the kids in any capacity, they're going to interpret it in however they, they do. Mm -hmm. And so that's part of the environment I grew up in is not really understanding where I could feel safe mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. um, how to express my emotions. Mm -hmm. And even like just until a couple of years ago to recognize what happened to me was sexual abuse, mm. right? Like I, I, I used to blame myself or not even understand that's what happened mm -hmm. until I got into therapy and started to really explore these things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, 
It's a lot there and I appreciate you sharing. And I know you've done a lot of work to be able to just even share what you just did. And yeah, I'm wondering how much more you want to talk about that. You know, I don't want to push it any more than you would like, but I'm, I'm wondering, I think for people that might also have gone through the same experience and, or, you know, are having those thoughts, Yeah, you know, it might be helpful to, to, to learn a little bit more about what happened. And, you know, what I'm curious about is specifically just to kind of, you know, go there if it's okay, you know, this sexual molestation where you were questioning, was that what that was? I think that this is, um, it's not talked about a lot, you know, but it's definitely more prevalent than people think. Yeah. And I don't know if you'd like to or willing to share more about that. I think, I mean, yes, the answer is yes. I think, you know, the big thing is because I was in it, like I was in the center of it, I wasn't fully aware of how it was impacting me or what it even was. And so, you know, these things happened and then I went off to college and then I started to try to rebuild a life without even understanding what I was rebuilding from. Mm -hmm. And so like in my twenties, I did a lot of harmful things to myself and the people around me, Mm -hmm. drugs, alcohol, sex. And I realized at a certain moment in my thirties, these things aren't serving me. What I just recently started to recognize is those things I was doing, I was looking for these releases and I was looking for happiness and maybe a drug would give me a short-term happiness, Mm -hmm. but I'm not dealing with the underlining reason why I'm unhappy. Mm -hmm. I'm not even aware of why I'm unhappy. Mm -hmm. And so it took me many years to start realizing like I'm, in some ways I'm a narcissist. I'm focused on just me. I'm, I'm, I'm abusing myself. And by abusing myself, I'm abusing the people around me. And I remember my roommate, Lori, you know, one day, I don't know how it happened, but I just realized that this isn't serving me. I remember looking at my phone and realizing all the people on my phone, my phone book are people that I go out and party with. And I didn't feel like I had these like genuine friendships. And I was curious. I started getting curious as to why that is. Mm -hmm. And I just started to say, well, if this isn't serving me, if I'm truly not happy, what's going to bring me happiness? Mm. And that's when I just started to explore different things in the community. And my roommate, Lori, at the time said, Matt, I don't know who this new version of you is. It's like a light switch. One day you, you know, you're one way and another day you're just so open to the world and the community and more present with me and, and people around you. And so I don't think I answered your question. I think I actually avoided your question no, in a okay. way. That's okay. But um, I think what I realized is there was a lot of pain mm-hmm. that happened in the first three decades of my life. Mm-hmm. And I've only spent the last not even decade starting to unpack that. And truly the pain, the harm that was done to this young child, this young Matt. Mm-hmm. I mean, I in third grade... Do you remember Richard Simmons? Sure. Do you remember Deal a Meal? Do you know what that is? I don't remember that. Oh, I'm sure some of your uh, listeners might. It's it, Richard Simmons would be like on QVC. Mm-hmm. I watched QVC. Uh, well, I remember <laughs> Richard Simmons being on QVC. That's sort of hard to forget. That was, but like my nick- was a memorable per- uh, personality. One of my nicknames <laughs> that was given to me was Roundy, right? Because I was a little heavier when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And so I ordered from QVC Richard Simmons deal meal which is basically a <laughs> diet plan. And I had it when I was in second or third grade. Mm-hmm. These aren't healthy behaviors. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't want to try to explain your story, but what you've shared, to me, it sounds like the first part, the first decade, maybe even less, is where there was so much pain inflicted that the the subsequent decades of acting out and like continuing to, you know, go down that spiral, you know, and this is why I like to talk about the early part and it's just one part. I mean, it's, 
clearly a part of your story and it doesn't have to define you the rest of your life, but it does explain a lot, right? Even, even when you land on your feet, you can look back on it differently. This is more how I feel about it, but you know, maybe you do too. You said something earlier when we were starting about how you feel more human mm. now that you've done this work. And, and I would argue that you've stepped more into who you really are at your essence and you're landing and grounded and now sharing and expanding from a, a place that feels more like you, like your true authentic self. But I don't think that makes you more human. I think actually the little boy that was unfairly uh, abused, bullied, molested, and whatever else was equally as human, you know? And, and I think I know what you meant, but I, I, I think this is part of the, the problem with addiction, with society, where people are ashamed or they are scared or, you know, afraid to share their flaws or their, their secrets or the things that happened to them that weren't their fault, especially when, when you're just a kid, you know? Yeah. I I agree with you a hundred percent. When I say more human, it's exactly what you're saying that I learned a lot of bad traits when I was a kid. I can manipulate people like a pro. Mm -hmm. I learned that trait. Yeah. It doesn't serve me. And to your point, it doesn't serve the essence of who I am. Mm -hmm. And I can choose to continue a life like that. And I did that for many years, for example, in my 20s, to get what I wanted or Mm -hmm. what I thought I wanted. Mm -hmm. Or I can choose a different path that is more connected to my essence. And I think the essence of all of us in terms of how we want to love, love ourselves and love other people. And the more I can tap into that, I think the more human I become. Mm -hmm. When Mm -hmm. I put up walls and I decide to manipulate a a situation because I'm trying to get something out of it or get something from somebody, it doesn't serve me well. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't serve our world. And so what I've learned just over the past few years is how to better tap into the essence of my being and be it in my personal life or even in my work, I show up as a different leader, even in my work, because I'm more connected to, to my purpose mm-hmm. yeah. in a way that I wasn't 10 years ago. Like some of the reasons I started BESA, right, was out of unhappiness in my current state. And something beautiful came from that, but fully understanding that unhappiness, mm-hmm. um, because I didn't fully understand it, I also could micromanage people. I was trying to control the environment and, and how this thing was blossoming. And that's not, in my opinion, the best way to manage and run a business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. It's unfortunately debatable um, because it depends on what you're trying to achieve. But I agree that for me and you, it just doesn't feel right, you know, and to do it any other way. And, and I admire how you've built your business. I want to talk about that. Let's back up just a little yeah. bit though first, because I am curious about this seed of purpose and service. And I was wondering if you think back on that essence, Yeah. and I don't know how far back you might go to, to find it, but do you remember there being parts of you, even at a young age that had curiosity or sort of just intuitively an interest in service or did it really come later in life? It's a good question. I think it probably was always there, but until I started to dig, Mm -hmm. did I truly find it and realize like, this is something that like, even as I'm talking to you, I can feel my heart and my, my soul, right? Like it just, it resonates, it vibrates Mm -hmm. in a way that's, that's really important. You know, I think early on because of the trauma and just as a, as a child trying to navigate that, that's where a lot of my focus was. And I was, I was just trying to survive back then without even realizing it, I was trying to survive. You know, one thing I didn't mention earlier is 
1983, nine days before my third birthday. So my, my birthday is February 13th, nine days prior, my grandfather was, was murdered. And so this is right before my birthday. It was a horrible situation. I remember my mother telling me she got a call from the hospital and they said, you know, something happened. We just need you to come down to the hospital. And she didn't know exactly what that meant. And so she gets in her car and she always has, it's KYW 1060s, the local news in Philadelphia. And she always has that on when she's driving. But for some reason, the radio wasn't working today. And she said to me that she's so grateful that it wasn't working because the story of the murder was the top story mm. that morning. So anyways. Boy, that's terrible. Yeah, it's, it, it, you were how old? Right, uh, just under three. Yeah. And so here's the thing though, my mother and my family internalized that. They never talked about it. This mm. horrible thing that has happened to this family, mm -hmm. they never talked about. And my mother's comment to me is, you were just three years old. Like how did that impact your life? Mm -hmm. Right? Like if that impacts her life, it's going to impact my life. There's just so many things that happened back then. But to, to answer your question about, I think it's this like deep well of empathy and, and trying to understand a few years ago during the pandemic, you know, I was, this, here's this thing that we never talked about, but I had the court records because they, there's two men, they caught one of them. They didn't catch the other one. So they had the trial and the, the records from the trial, the transcripts. And so I had those and I read them and I know the gentleman's name. And so I just started to do some research and I found out where is his last known residence. And I mean, this is kind of wild, but I flew to Philadelphia. I drove downtown to this address. I knocked on the door. I'm doing all this because I'm just trying to all of this impacted my life and it's not something that's talked about. And I don't know what I was necessarily looking for on the other side of that door, but on the door, there was a sign that said, you know how like houses have something that says like this house is protected by Brinks or simply safe. Mm -hmm. This one had one that said this house is, is protected by the love of Jesus Christ. Mm. And I just knew that I hoped and I thought that on the other side of that door, there would be someone that I could connect with. Mm. And so this woman answers the door. And I said, I'm sorry to bother you. Do you happen to know? And I, I said the gentleman's name and she started to cry. And right away she knew why I was there. Wow. And, and I said, I flew all the way from Columbus, Ohio to knock on this door to have a conversation with you. And I'm wondering if we could just talk for a minute. And she said, my brother, I love my brother. He did some, some awful things, but he was a good person. And then we sat for like an hour on her, her front porch. She was inside with a metal screen. I was on the outside. I was listening through the mail slot because there was traffic and I had to like listen really closely. And we just connected around her brother. And what I realized in that moment was this didn't just impact my family. It impacted an entire another family that I never even really thought about. Mm -hmm. it impacted two families, this incident. Mm. And so to, you know, going back to your question or your comment about, you know, where does this, this idea of service come from? One is I've, I'm trying to connect with myself and connect with the people around me. I think we're all trying to do the best we can with, with the tools, with the resources that we have. And, and I, I don't have the answers, but I know that the more I talk to people, the better I understand. Mm -hmm. Right. This is a horrible incident that happened. In some ways it could be embarrassing. It could be embarrassing for her to even for me to come and, and talk to her about it. But instead she opened her heart and her home to me. And we had a conversation. We connected about something that she hasn't talked about in decades. Mm. Wow. That's amazing. I, um, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this actually. And that's like a pretty phenomenal example of how you can stay open and curious and heal, yes. you know, as a result of not letting a horrible event, you know, define somebody. That's um, the key though, right? Mm -hmm. Like horrible things happen. It's what do we want to do with those things, right? Mm -hmm. Like we fall down, something horrible happens. We fall down, we get back up. 
I think we should try to orient ourselves before we take the next step forward, but we've got to keep moving forward. Yeah. You know, what, what's been coming through for me lately is that we as a society, at least in the world that I've been living in, you know, it might be different in other places with other people. I find there to be so much judgment Hmm. and so much righteousness. And sometimes I get it, you know, I mean, I do it too. I'm definitely guilty of it, but I'm trying not to more and more because I think it comes back to this, like just being human. And I don't think anybody ever, and and this is an extreme example, but I don't think anybody ever decides consciously at some point, you know what, you know what I'm going to do with my life? I'm going to murder somebody and I'm going to ruin two families' lives, including my own. Uh, That's what I want to do with my life. Nobody does that ever. And it doesn't excuse horrible behavior, but I think you have to kind of look at like what, what else is going on here? That's right. How do we get to this spot? And before we just decide that people are good and bad and, you know, belong in prison forever and whatever else, I think it's, it's really important for us to stop and, and question, you know, well, what else is going on here? That's causing this? How did we get to this point? Then boy, it sounds like you did that in a real extreme situation. I think you're absolutely right. It's, we're human. It's easy to judge. And in some ways that protects us for, for centuries, right? But also I think the harder thing is to sometimes just get curious and mm-hmm. I'm trying to get more curious. And even in my own personal relationship, right? Like the more curious I get, the more successful I am in alleviating an argument or supporting my husband and supporting the relationship. Sometimes it's easier to judge and, and make judgments and, and, and all of that and, and move forward. But that can also, what I've realized is a lot of times when I'm judging, I'm judging you, but really it has something to do with me, right? right. It's the inner critic. And the more touch I can get with my inner critic and say, ah, whatever you did, you cut me off. You're an asshole for cutting me off. No, you cut me off and that was wrong. And I don't excuse that. Like I can say that's wrong. But the reason you cut me off, I don't know if you're an asshole. Maybe you're, you know, you have to run home to use the bathroom. Maybe you have a, a family member in the hospital. Maybe you're, you're, you're right. So right. how can I stop myself? And the minute I start judging again, I realize if I step back and I just start focusing on my breathing and meditating, I realize, wait a second, there's something going on inside of me that has nothing to do with that other person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the more curious I get again, I have those opportunities to have these types of conversations with people from all walks of life. Yeah. Now, you know, I think one of the important pieces of that, which you've clearly done, is you can't skip to that part so quickly either like it's okay to be angry sad hurt suffer even if you know something has happened that is is so painful to experience you know i don't think we just like jump to forgiveness and openness and curiosity even and 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 i don't know i'm not even sure as i say that if that's that's right but i I just don't want to dismiss the the hurt and the pain that is caused by people's poor choices and actions right even if there's an explanation for why somebody is doing what they're doing you can't ignore that it is making an impact and there is probably some tiny little moment in there where there's a decision that's made that is that doesn't have to be made you know? And so there's, you know, there's choice. Katie and I talk a lot about this, but it's just not that simple, but it is, I don't know, sticky in there. It's definitely sticky. And I think the question is, where's the line? And what I mean by that is it's, yes, if someone does something wrong to me, you can't, I, I don't excuse their behavior. You don't excuse the behavior, but to your point earlier, maybe sometimes trying to understand how they came to that decision if you're trying to mend 
It's important not to excuse bad behavior. I think that's when people learn, right? If you say, you know, that's not right. But then to give them space to elaborate why they they made that decision, why they they're inflicting pain. And sometimes it has nothing to most times it has nothing to do with the other person and more to do with themselves. That's right. And also I agree with you like I need to give space for if I'm feeling anger, I'm feeling anger. I'm not going to excuse that. Right. And I think that my meditation coach, what, what he recently said to me was the Dalai Lama has, has anger. The difference is for me, the anger can last a day or days or a week. The Dalai Lama, it lasts a few seconds. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, how do you process that anger in a healthy, productive way? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. You do need to just, you know, feel that and move it and do it in a healthy way. And I think the, just going back to something you said, this sense of wanting to connect with people, this, this sense of empathy, it's, it's a huge part of who I am. It's a huge part of the body of work that is a part of me. And I'm grateful, right? It, it took me almost four decades to get to this place. And there was a lot of pain to your comment, right? The first decade, decade and a half were some of the most painful moments of my entire life. But Brett, I am so incredibly grateful for those lessons because the way I show up with my daughter, the way I can love on her, there's this thing, when I pick up Evie from daycare, sometimes like even yesterday, she looked at me and she ran the other way. She went to the teacher. Mm -hmm. When Ian picks Evie up from daycare, it's like she won the lottery. Mm. And Ian said to me, well, like, she did. <laughs> <laughs> a little, little, little love for Ian there. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. We all love Ian. Um, and he, so, you know, he, he commented to me, like, how does that make you feel? And there was a version of me a few years ago where I would get jealous and upset. But there's a version of me now that sees that. And I'm so grateful that she has that relationship with Ian. And it doesn't affect the amount of love I have for her, right? How much she, she shows affection to me or doesn't show affection to me does not impact one ounce the amount of love and affection I have for her. I don't know if I would feel that way. I don't know if I would be at this place if I didn't have those lessons from earlier on in terms of how not to, I didn't know how to have a healthy relationship. Mm-hmm. It's taken me four decades to really realize how to have a healthy relationship. Yeah. Yes. And I think that what has allowed you to show up for your daughter that way to be in healthy relationships is that work that you did on yourself. Yeah. Right. At the end of the day, I think that work that gets done on self really does impact everything in your life. Right. Including your relationships. I mean, you're doing that work, not just for you. Yes. It sounds narcissistic and selfish, but it's not because the experience that others are going to have of you. That's absolutely right. You can, you can now run your business the way you run it. As a result, you can um, love on your daughter, even when, you know, she's not responding the way you want. Right. And actually it's beautiful because it's really counterintuitive. What most people do in that situation uh, who have not done their own work is they get mad or they say, you know, don't talk to me that way or don't do that. Or, you know, you're misbehaving. Right. And then who's going to want to love somebody that's doing that right now? I mean, maybe you can guilt them and shame them into loving you or showing you love, but you know, that's not a great model either. And what your daughter's really going to do is I've seen this, there'll be periods of time where mm-hmm. you're the the rock star and, and Ian's not. And the I'm waiting for those days. Well, they're coming, I promise. And it's really at the end of the day, it's like it actually has nothing to do with either of you. It's it's really just a kid being a kid, exactly. you know. And but but it's more likely that you're gonna get that true, meaningful relationship, that intimacy when you're not taking it personal, when you're grounded within yourself, when you're able to just keep showing up regardless of what comes back as a parent, especially really, really, you know, important, great work. Let's, let's back up just a bit. I want to talk about Bessa. Okay. I want to understand the very, very beginning of Bessa 
And and what I mean, like, I mean, the first thought mm-hmm. about Bessa, when does Bessa come into your world? And, and I think before you answer that, yeah. it's really obvious to me that all of these experiences, and, and this is why I like to start at the beginning, because I do believe that our lives are perfectly divinely designed. And if we are able to integrate these experiences, you can ultimately um, come out on the other side and ultimately be of service to other people. And and I think that's clear with you that this, this, maybe it was always in you, as you said, but, but no doubt these life experiences created an empathy that had you really wanting to dedicate your life to service. So yeah, back up and tell me the beginning, that first sort of spark that, yeah. that was Bessa. As you're talking, I'm just thinking about our tagline, which is be the good. And to your point, I think I have been searching for my good. And so in some ways, that's what Bessa to me is, that I'm trying to build something that allows me to share good and, and be in, in concert with other people. But to answer your question, I went to the business school at Ohio State University. And I remember when I applied, I, again, this goes back to, to, you know, societal tendencies. It's something that's in me and will probably be in me for the rest of my life. And the way it was described to, to me was it's like a, a dark cloud. And sometimes that cloud is really small and you want to try to keep it small. And sometimes it gets big and you have to recognize when it gets big because you don't want it to overwhelm you because that's when bad things happen. I say that because it sounds so silly. I, when I applied to the Fisher College of Business, I said, if I don't get in, there's no reason going on with my life. And I like that just, that's so absurd, right? And it's so interesting because I come from a, a line of entrepreneurs. My, my father started a business. It was really important for me to go into the business school. And I, I didn't got into the business school. And I went right after college, I went right into business. I worked at a market research firm, and then I jumped to Abercrombie & Fitch, and I did market research there. And it was an incredible opportunity for a 24-year-old, 23-year-old. I was traveling the country. I was talking to customers. I was talking to employees. I was reporting back to leadership here in Columbus, Ohio about trends and price analysis and all these things that were really interesting to me because my background is market research and marketing. And I was there for close to five years. And I lived, I lived a really fast lifestyle, right? Like I, I, I worked really hard. Sometimes I was working seven days a week. I remember there were times that I would leave my, my parking lot in Victorian Village early in the morning before the sun was up. I would go to the Abercrombie. And when I left, the sun was already down. And so I missed the sun, the light in some of the days. And I worked hard, but also there was a culture there that you partied hard. And so I was living a lifestyle that I thought I was happy. But if I'm honest with you, with myself, I was miserable. I was miserable. I wasn't, I was doing work that was interesting to me. I was doing it with people that were fun and really good at what they were doing, but it wasn't the right seat for me. And so when I was 27 years old, I said to myself, I don't know where I want to be when I'm 30, but I know this isn't the right place for me and I need to start exploring opportunities. And there used to be a paper in Columbus called The Other Paper. I picked it up. I, I turned to the back where our, like classifieds are and there was a help wanted ad for suicide prevention services. They needed hotline workers. And I signed up. I went through the training and I was on that hotline for like three years. I knew, Brett, I knew nothing about the nonprofit sector. I knew nothing about how nonprofits worked. I knew everything about the business sector, about retail. And this was my first exposure really to nonprofits, the people that work there, volunteers, and the people that they're helping. And I found that in that dark, cramped office where I was Saturday and Sunday mornings, I did it Saturday and Sunday mornings, 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. because that would keep me out of trouble Friday night and Saturday night while I was partying a lot. I found a lot of fulfillment and purpose, both in terms of the volunteer 
his name is Sheldon. He was my shift partner at the time. Him and I, you would always have a shift partner because if you're working with someone that's in crisis, you're talking to them while your shift partner is trying to, you know, call for help, call 911, mm -hmm. whatever. And so I built a relationship with my shift partner. I built a relationship with the people who ran this hotline. They're some of the most beautiful souls dedicated to this work, dedicated to some of the most vulnerable people in our community. And I fell in love with the work itself, with the people that, that, that I had an opportunity to connect with on the other side of that phone line. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted more of those experiences. That's mm -hmm. what brought me alive. Those experiences of connecting with people mm -hmm. around, you know, maybe a horrible moment in their life, but for them to know they're not alone, that there is somebody else there that they might not have ever met, but loves them. Mm. Yeah. Amazing. I've actually a couple things you said that I've been thinking a lot about lately. And one of them is actually Abercrombie. Mm. And the other one is just this, you know, kind of part of your story where you are bringing this business piece mm. first. I've kind of publicly said, as I've been involved with conscious capitalism, that I'm not really sure there's a better way to solve the world's greatest problems other than through the world of for-profit business, because the nonprofit world, um, you know, historically, in my experience, I would say with most nonprofits, um, you have tremendous good intention and people with huge hearts that care a ton. But unfortunately, a lot of nonprofits don't pay their staff well. They don't have the top talent. They, you know, maybe can't afford enough staff. There's so many challenges within that sort of model that make it difficult to execute at a high level, which I think is why so many nonprofits struggle. It's more complicated than that. It's, it's way more complicated than I know. You would know way better. But I do think the fact that you have this business experience and the retail yeah. experience, you know, when I think about Bessa, I think both are extremely critical to your success. Absolutely. And th there are two reasons why nonprofits typically aren't successful. One is there's a misalignment between the executive director or CEO and the board. And so their alignment there is really important. And the other one is funding is all really in one bucket, right? It could be a government grant. It could be uh, from a specific funder. I was on the board of a nonprofit and the I think it was like 80% of the annual revenue came from one donor. And every year the executive director would sit down for lunch with that donor and she would write a check. That's not sustainable. That donor was in her seventies or eighties. It's definitely not sustainable. Mm -hmm. And so there are, you know, to your point, there are a ton of nonprofits out there doing incredible work. You think about the pandemic and the people who who desperately needed help, nonprofits were the ones who stepped in to help people. Yeah. The trick to all of it is how do you effectively run a nonprofit? Because it's a not-for-profit business, right? Like it's still a business. In the IRS code, it's still a business. It's just a different type of business. And so it's important for, for me, for Bessa, to operate just like a business because we are a business. Yeah. And that's the key. I think that's sort of what gets lost is, you know, and I, I literally just had this conversation, I think it was yesterday, the day before, two days ago with a friend of mine who used to work at Abercrombie. So that's yeah. why I was also thinking about Abercrombie and he ran a nonprofit. He worked at Abercrombie, he ran a nonprofit and he was saying, you know, the, that there's really no difference. Um, there's no difference yes. between a business and a nonprofit, but unfortunately, most nonprofits don't run like businesses. Most, I mean, many, I don't know. And the flip is true too. Most businesses forget about the things that nonprofits are really doing right that yes. could also really be incorporated into business. Absolutely. Right? I mean, it's sort of this like, I don't know, for benefit lane, you know, where call it what you want. It doesn't really matter, but can you operate in a way that is doing well and doing good, right? That is attracting and compensating top talent, that's doing good work, whether the money is, you know, getting flushed to the bottom line or recycled back. It doesn't really matter. It's sort of a mindset. 
And also, right, like we could also flip it and say how many businesses go under, right, because they're not effectively managed. Oh, yeah. And and so it's just, you know, who is running the business and are they effective in running the business and bringing the right stakeholders to the table? To me, there are incredible businesses out there like Roosevelt, right? Mm -hmm. I love the coffee. I love the experience when I go there. It's just, it's a beautiful experience and I'm spending money and I'm getting, I'm receiving a coffee, a really good cup of coffee in return. On the nonprofit side, I'm asking, it's, it's almost like courageous capital to borrow a, a term from, from a, the Women's Fund of Central Ohio. They use that term a lot and I love it. But I'm asking you as a donor, not to buy a cup of coffee, but to buy into this mission, this vision, this idea of what our community can be. Mm -hmm. Right, like to me, Bessa is this opportunity. You look around the world. I cannot turn on the TV and watch the news because I just, I get negative. I get this negative energy that doesn't serve me well. Mm -hmm. When I go online, even this morning, I go online, I read an article and then I see the comments and it just makes me like cringe. Mm -hmm. When I go out and volunteer, it's the complete opposite. Yeah. I feel connected to myself. I feel connected to the community. I feel connected to the people that are in this room with me. I feel empowered. And I wanna be able to provide that experience to so many people. And in order to do that, I need the right donors, funders at the table, people who get that. I don't just want you there because you have money. Mm -hmm. I want you there because you see what's going on in the world and you wanna be a part of a solution. Yeah. Talk just a little bit so people that don't know, yeah. I'm just you know, realizing I probably skipped over a lot just based on yeah. my knowledge of Bessa um, and your story. But you know, in kind of our you know last few minutes here, I'd like you to make sure you touch yeah. on you know how then you know Bessa really came to be and what Bessa is and and where it's going, where yeah. where it is today, where it's going. So. BASA, our whole goal is to make it easier for people to learn about needs in the community and then activate within those needs. And really what I mean by that is, let me say it this way. When I was at Abercrombie, I would go from my parking lot in Victorian Village to the parking lot out in New Albany back and forth every day, sometimes seven days a week. And I was missing what was in between, which is community. And it's not that I didn't want to be engaged with the community. I just didn't know how. And so... That's the purpose of BESA. How can we, we have so many challenges as a community, as a society, and the only way we're going to fully address them is if more people are engaged in them. And that's what we're trying to do every single day through BESA is bring more awareness to the needs of this community, be it you know the housing needs, hunger, senior welfare, animal welfare. How do we bring more awareness to these needs and make it as easy as possible for people to sign up and show up primarily through volunteerism? To me, volunteerism is the, the way that people can start exploring their, their relationship with community. If I can get you to sign up and show up at a project um, and you have this incredible experience, that is two hours, three hours of your time that are given to a nonprofit. And then if you have an incredible experience, you're more likely to come back. You're more likely to bring friends, family, coworkers. And so it becomes this, this upward spiral, if you will, momentum, where we're getting more people engaged in the community. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's actually, it's deeper than people realize because sometimes I think volunteering or, you know, giving to a nonprofit, it's sort of minimalized, but it's, it's actually like, if you think about something that brings you energy and so if it's exercise or meditation or anything that you do that actually helps you feel better. And sometimes those things are things you don't really want to do, which is sort of odd because why would you not want to do the things that make you feel better? I mean, this is sort of the pleasure versus happiness thing, right? It's easy to get pleasure. It's, it's much harder to get happiness, but that's really what you're after. And, and volunteering, yes, you're giving to somebody else, but what you're getting has such an impact on you and consequently, then how you're affecting the people around you, you know, at work, at home. I mean, it has such a, a broader impact than just 
what you're offering to somebody. You know, I think sometimes maybe, you know, you could talk a little bit about that. Like people need to understand what it's going to do for them too. Really what it comes down to is social connection. And that's something that we have lost a lot of. And I can scientifically say a lot. The, the Surgeon General just came out with a report that the epidemic of our time, at one point it was HIV AIDS, it was smoking. Today, it's loneliness. Mm-hmm. We are more lonely as a society than we have ever been before. And what does that do to people? They have shown that it is as harmful to you physically as smoking a pack of cigarettes every single day. Yeah. And so how do we address that? Well, in his report, he talks about this, this idea that we need more opportunities for people to come together. Yeah. Volunteerism is one of those ways. And it's not just coming together in an echo chamber, right? With people that are just like-minded because that's not going to serve you. That actually can create more loneliness if you're just in an echo chamber. The key is to come together in a diverse setting from people from all walks of life because that's going to bring more awareness to you, more understanding, more appreciation, more empathy, more social connection. Yeah, That's volunteerism. Yeah, I, I was just listening to a podcast where the guy was talking about this pleasure happiness thing. Yeah. So that's why it's front of mind. But, you know, he says like nobody, the, the things that people do for pleasure, one thing to look at is, are you doing it alone? Hmm. If you're doing it alone, it's probably not good. So if you're drinking by yourself, if yeah. you're using porn or whatever yeah. it is, right? Like these are things that you think might be giving you pleasure, but it's probably not going to do much for you in the long run. It's a short term fix. All the beer commercials, like nobody shows a guy drinking beer on his couch by himself. Like that's not a good sales pitch, right? You know, it's out with a bunch of people at a party and they're all beautiful and whatever. Yeah. Connectedness, the community, you know, and, and I will just say my experience and what brought us together was that I was looking for philanthropic opportunities to bring my kids and my family to when they were little. I wanted to teach them the importance of giving back. And what I think is so amazing about Bessa is we had a terrible experience trying to give back. I remember specifically there was a food pantry that we were trying to volunteer at and you couldn't get somebody to call you back they finally called you back. They were sort of obviously stretched too thin and not that friendly. And then there was a bunch of paperwork and, you know, you had to come in person to fill it out. And it was just like way too much friction to be able to just, you know, give back. And so part of the reason I started Kaufman Development, you know, we, we said from the beginning that it was about, then we said sustainability, well, wellness, impact and philanthropy. And the philanthropic part was something I didn't know anything about. So we tried on our own to do philanthropic events for our communities, but we were terrible at it. Mm. And so discovering you and Bessa solved that, that for us, you know, as a company, as a community to be able to so easily, I mean, that's the genius of Bessa is just the ease in which you're able to really get access to all of these opportunities to give back to other people. To your point, that food pantry, I guarantee you, we probably work that food pantry today. Yeah, I bet. And we currently have 140 different nonprofits in central Ohio that we work with. So many of them are understaffed, overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. And so our goal is to help them increase capacity. We have an entire team that works, program team that works with these nonprofits to understand what are they trying to do? What are some of the pain points? And then how can we plug in and support, again, primarily through volunteerism? But then those volunteers become donors, they become board members, they become activists. What kind of energy do we want to put out in the world, right? It's easy to sometimes put negativity out there. It's easy to sometimes judge. I think it's also easy to... I mean, to your point, like, why don't we, why don't I work out more? I know it's healthy for me, but these are the things we should do. We should sign up and we should show up in this community. If this community matters to us, if we are a part of it and we are, we should sign up, we should show up. And I guarantee you that when you do, you're going to have this unbelievable experience. And you're right, an experience that's going to impact your life 
it's going to impact the lives of the people that you're serving. But then there's a third category. It's going to impact your relationships because you're going to come home and tell your wife, your kids, whomever about it. And it's also going to just impact the type of energy that you have, right? Like if you serve 200 women dinner at the shelter down the street from here, Van Buren, and you have this experience where you connect with, with a woman who says thank you to you, how's that going to make you feel? And then what kind of energy are you going to bring home that night to your family? And I think these things, while they seem small, they're so important to the health and the well-being of each individual community member and as our community as a whole. Mm. Agree. And it's been really a pleasure to watch you do the work that you do and see it really spread through this community and solving big problems. And I know it's not been easy, but you've had a tremendous amount of success and it's great to hear how you've used your journey and each piece of it so that you could build this organization and do the work that you're doing. And I have no doubt it'll just continue to expand as you do. And yeah, it's just great to to know you, to um, be a small part of the of the journey and to be with you here today. I'm just great. I mean, I get teary-eyed thinking about you, Brad. It has been a wonderful journey. It is a wonderful journey. This is the journey of life. And I'm grateful I get to do it with you. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram at the Gravity Podcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak.